before we go into the message. You want to bring that first one up? What you're looking at, and you know what? I am going to just uh, kill those lights because it's uh, a little bit on the um, bright side. I want to make sure you guys see this. Oh, well, lost the phone. Okay, here we go. We'll just do this. What you're looking at, can you see it? I'm sorry, it's a little faded. Is you're looking at a picture of the centerpiece of worship in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. And I just want you to notice, I want to point out some parts to it because I'm going to be referring to it. But the tabernacle, as you can see, all the tents of Israel, the millions of members of Israel, were um, pitched situated around the tabernacle, north, south, east, and west, and the tabernacle was in the center of the camp of Israel. It, uh, it began with a, an outer court. You see that white outer perimeter. And in that outer court, you see the priests and the animals, all the sacrifices took place. And so out in the outer court, the business of the outer court was to deal with the sins of the people. Then when you enter into the building, that building that you see has two rooms in it. If we go to the next slide. There we go. So you kind of see a diagram. The building was divided with a great curtain. You see that line there? And, and in the front half of the room was the holy place. And that area called the holy place is where ministry to the Lord took place. Prayer, worship, and uh, seeking the face of God. But nobody could see the face of God. He was separate. He was literally isolated away from them by that great giant curtain that was several inches thick called the veil. And on the other side of the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And that room in there is called the Holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the presence of God resided. The only thing in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that box, the Ark of the Covenant, were three items. They were Aaron's rod that budded. They were a little bowl of manna and the tablets with the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Sinai. But the, the top of the Ark was solid gold with two angels facing each other. Their wings were aimed forward and their wingtips touched each other. Now, we always see in these pictures a kind of like a, a little figurine you might put on your hutch. We think that, that the angels, you know, were just little bitty figures. Those angels, the Bible tells us, were 15 feet high. And their wingspan was 15 feet. They filled, they filled that holy of holies. They were massive. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant and the angels were solid gold. So outer court is where sin was dealt with. The holy place is where ministry, prayer, and intercession took place. I'm not going to comment on the, the various articles and then the most holy, the most holy place was only visited once a year when the high priest, after going through intense, special, sacred pre preparation, washing, cleansing, he would go in as an intercessor for the sins of the people, the high priest, 
and he would go before the ark, and he couldn't look at the ark. He would go in bowing on his, on his bow down, like on his hands and feet, with a rope tied around his ankle. Because if there was any sin in him that he hadn't confessed and gotten right, he would die the instant he got into the presence of the Lord. And of course, the rope was so they could drag him back out, you know. Um, so I don't know if that ever happened, actually, but, uh, but that was the case. So nobody actually ever got to see the presence of God. And uh, except for that high priest would go in, he must have felt this incredible presence. Okay, so just the last slide, want to throw that up and uh, for a quick brief moment. And the last slide, again, just shows how the tabernacle was situated and all of Israel camped around it. That great light that you see that broke through the top of the, the, the tabernacle and shone, that pillar of fire, that is the Shekinah glory of God. And that glory of the Lord, that light, emanated from between the wingtips of the two angels in the Holy of Holy and beamed up. And Israel saw that manifestation of God's presence. It must have been awesome. Okay, thanks. We'll get those lights back on. All right, I wanted to give you just a little bit of uh, that information. You can kill that projector. Thanks. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Now that you've seen the tabernacle, you'll understand from the New Testament this scripture. Since therefore, brethren, we have boldness to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus. Now stop for a moment think, what did I just tell you? Nobody entered the Holy of Holies. And the high priest went through such ceremonial cleansing and confession so as to survive a few moments there before the ark. Yet in the New Testament it says, Brethren, we now have boldness to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. Notice that phrase, through the veil. That is, the veil, his flesh. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Everyone say that with me. Let us draw near. Draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay. The, the uh, centerpiece of worship in the Old Testament, the entire tabernacle, was basically not a device for contacting God, but a device of separation. It was a device that kept the worshipers away from God. They didn't contact God. They didn't come to God. What they did is they came uh, to an approximation. But the tabernacle was a device of separation. In other words, in the outer court, you could seek forgiveness. In the holy place, the priests could go through 
um, the acts of worship, but all of it was without contact. Imagine worship without contact with God. Imagine trying to deal with your sins without the presence of God, without any contact with God. In a way, you could see that God tolerated the tabernacle, even though he gave them that pattern. I believe in a way God hated the tabernacle because it was restrictive. It was frustrating. There was never any way that through the tabernacle people could actually come to God. And so when they dealt with their sins, for example, in the, in the outer court, dealing with sins was temporarily putting them on credit on a growing tab of debt that was waiting to be paid. So all those days and all those years through the Old Testament, when all those sacrifices were being made, they were just simply kind of scooting the sins of the people aside temporarily, but they were never really paid for. So by the time Jesus came, a tremendous bill. How many of you have ever got a tremendous bill in the mail? I don't know how many of you itemize your visa bill. I, every month I have to itemize it, and I dread it. Every item, matching the receipts with the, with the charges. Imagine every sin was piled up like a giant visa bill. They were only forgiven on credit. And if that bill wasn't paid, they were never going to get out of Abraham's bosom and actually be able to go to heaven. Nobody, when they died, went to the presence of the Lord because they were still in their sins, forgiven only on credit. Do, do you see the, the, the tentativeness of the tabernacle. And think for a minute about the worship, the priests who were worshiping and, and going through the precise motions of worship, the prescription that Moses had given them, no matter how precise they were and no matter how much those, those acts of precision were lined up with truth, the worshipers were never transformed. Their worship was never fully accepted. And they were never changed by it. It was, it was a frustration at the very least. The tabernacle was basically, so far as worship is concerned, an aiming system. Not a meeting place. It was not a meeting system. It was an aiming system. It pointed to a God who was far beyond their reach. That's what the tabernacle was. The very best product of the tabernacle, the best that the tabernacle produced, was a desperate hope for a Messiah who would come, pay that tab, and lead worshipers into the presence of God. The whole tabernacle, if it did one good thing, it did that. It made people desperate for the Messiah. Desperate that he would come. This is why Jesus marveled and wept over Jerusalem when he, the Messiah, came and the leaders of the tabernacle kicked him out, refused to accept him, denied him. No wonder he said, your house will be left to you desolate. And 40 years from now, your temple, 
your blessed temple that you put so much confidence in will be wiped out and destroyed. So the one good thing was to bring a hope that the Messiah would come. And that hope, let me, let me also bring this up because this is critical. Though from God's viewpoint, the one hope that was in the Messiah was not that a Messiah would come to deliver them from their enemies, make their plight on earth easier. That would be a byproduct. But the true hope of the Messiah, the true mission, would be that he would lead them in to the Holy of Holies. That what previously had been restricted would now be opened. The greatest thing that could happen to the nation of Israel, and indeed the world, would not be that you would be victorious over your enemies and have a wealthy, prosperous life the rest of your life, but that you would be able to enter the Holy of Holies and draw near to God. Because if you could draw near to Him and His kingdom, everything else would be added. That's what Jesus said. Hallelujah. Matthew 27, Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. He's only uttered a few words. But as he utters his final words, the Bible says Jesus cried again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And at once the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split open, and some amazing things happened. The Bible says at once, the very moment, I, I, I see the anxiousness of God. I can't wait to tear this veil from top to bottom. I can't wait to replace the barrier of the veil with the door, Jesus. Hallelujah. I mean, God had an attitude about this thing. The thing that you and I take so lightly. God is passionate about it. And that's why people who become passionate about what God's passionate about find themselves in his presence. They talk for a minute about that veil ripped from top to bottom. The the, the Holy of Holies was 30 feet high. It was, not, it was not like your modern house with an eight-foot ceiling. 30 feet up there. There's a great possibility that in Jesus' day, when the tabernacle was no more and they had the temple, that the veil in the temple may have been at least another 10 feet higher than that, 40 perhaps, it also spanned 30 feet across because the dimensions of the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place was 30 feet across. And so that veil was at least 30 feet high and 30 feet across. And the Bible says that it was like a hand breadth in thickness. It was like a couple of two or three Persian rugs slapped together with super glue 
Nobody was going to tear that thing apart, yet the Bible says at the moment Jesus died, somebody grabbed that veil and tore it asunder from top to bottom. I think you know who that was. Hallelujah. Jesus replaced the veil of separation with himself as he became the door into the holy of holies, installed in the new tabernacle in the heart of every born-again believer. God completely developed a new tabernacle. The old was gone. You know those movies about searching for the ark? Listen, it's a total waste of time. God discarded that thing. It's meaningless. In fact, when you go in the book of Revelation, you'll find that when John was up in, Revel, up in heaven in the book of Revelation, he, was, he had an opportunity to look into the heavenly temple. And when he looked into the heavenly temple, he saw one thing. He saw the ark. Now, I'm sure it wasn't that old wooden ark that Moses made because all that Moses built in the tabernacle, the Bible says, was built according to the pattern that he saw in heaven. So apparently there was an ark in heaven. John saw it. Guess what? It wasn't hidden behind a curtain. There was no barrier in heaven. It was open. Hallelujah. It was open. God's arms are open wide saying, come, all who labor, all who are thirsty, come to me. Praise God. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. The veil was a barrier, but Jesus is a door. Hallelujah. He is a door. And that torn veil, it, it, the, when that veil ripped from top to bottom, there's nothing said after that. But I wonder how the priests <laughs> went on from that point. You know, they say, fake it till you make it. You know, let's see if we can patch this up. I, I, I don't know how many rolls of duct tape they might have used to try to put it back together. But how do you go on? The utter embarrassment, the shock, the shame. The veil was ripped in half, and it was gone. Whatever was in that Holy of Holies was now there for everybody. I don't know how they conducted ministry after that. And God was like, I frankly don't care because whatever is there no longer matters. What matters is me, Jesus. Hallelujah. So that torn veil represented a couple of things, though, and I need to point them out to you. First of all, it meant that the ministry of the outer court dealing with sins and the ministry of the holy place, prayer, worship, communion, all of the things that we do when we gather together in fellowship, all of those things were now consolidated into the holy of holies. When that veil ripped, the glory of God moved out of the holy of holies and consumed the place of ministry and consumed the place of sacrifice. Which means that now the dealing with sins and the ministry unto the Lord is all accomplished in the Holy of Holies. It's all accomplished by the presence of God. Now, the way we minister to the Lord, the way we deal with our sins is to come near. Remember I had you repeat that phrase. 
Now that we have boldness and confidence, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. How do we win the loss to Christ? Let us draw near. How do we minister to the Lord? Let us draw near. How do we pray in a way that's accepted? Is it the formulaic prayers and the repetition of scriptures? No, let us draw near. Let us draw near to Jesus. Come, he is the door. Come to him, because when you've come to him, you've come to the holy of holies. Whatever was in that holy of holies, the minute that veil was torn, it moved out and it consolidated all the ministry. There's only one part of the tabernacle now, and it is the presence of God. Let us draw near. Hallelujah. So now all of ministry is fulfilled by boldness to enter through a new and living way. Let us draw near. The torn veil of, of Jesus' flesh became both the door into the Holy of Holies and also the door into all ministry. So now this was not a barrier. This was now a two-way door. And if you remember in John chapter 10, 9, do you remember when Jesus said, I am the door. If any man enters through me, he will be saved and he will do what? Come in and go out and find pasture. If you've ever wondered, what was he talking about? Come in through me and go out. Do we, do we want to go out from Jesus? That's not what he was saying. He said, when you have come in through the door, coming to me, drawing near, puts you both in the presence of God and it puts you in the presence of the unsaved as the representative of God. You will find pasture, the secret to the mission of every Christian is to draw near. The secret to the mission of every ministry, draw near. You shall go in and out, and that's how you find pastors. Someone say amen. amen. Where is the Holy of Holies in the church today? You know, the ability of evil to prevail over our society with such a large presence of Christians is evidence that the church in general has been lacking in its holy of holies experience. A spiritually weakened church explains the rising strength of deception and evil and the struggle of truth and righteousness to restrain it. How is the church weak, you might be tempted to ask. You might ask, we're up to date with technology. We take our mission, our mission and ministry so seriously. We've, we've gotten up to date with technology. We use all the latest resources. Well, we have learned the culture and we have stayed current with all the current affairs. And we have nearly purged from the church any traits that the world found offensive in us. So how have we become weak? It seems to me that, that we have done everything to style and to take our mission seriously so that we can be fruitful, so that we can find pasture. 
But Jesus didn't say you find pasture by doing any of those things. He said you find pasture by drawing near to me. Our weakness isn't in our connection to the world. It's our connection to the Holy of Holies. That's where we're weak as a church. We've concentrated our efforts in trying to find doors into people's hearts so that we can draw near to them. But when we focus on being relevant with society, you know what happens? We become misled. When we listen to people, we become misled by people who don't know what they need. So they tell us what they want. And the more we try to make our churches provide what they want, the further away from our mission we become. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. That's why he said, draw near to me. Jesus knows that the holy of holies is what the people really need. They don't need someone to listen to them. They don't need someone to hear what they want and bend over trying to lovingly provide it. What they need is the holy of holies. Jesus knows they don't want it, but they need it. They need it. And so when we focus our pursuits not on drawing near to people, but drawing near to the holy of holies, the Lord then makes us ambassadors of the holy of holies. Hallelujah. And we stand before the lost. And that light that you saw in the picture, that Shekinah glory shines on us. Not because we figured out what society wants, but because we have gone in and we remain in the presence. Glory to God. Someone say amen. The presence of the Lord. When the Holy Spirit first fell on the day of Pentecost and Peter and the rest of the disciples and the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and the glorious power of God, what happened? They drew near. They drew near until they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And right then, <clears throat> as the church was birthed in the Holy of Holies, they stayed in the Holy of Holies. Hallelujah. And here is this narrative of Peter, who is shortly after that has led all these people to the Lord and God's moving through him and the rest of them. They are now been arrested and hauled before the keepers of the torn veil. And here's what the scripture says. When Peter was threatened, stop preaching in Jesus' name. We don't want any more of this preaching going on. The Bible says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, replied, rulers of the people and elders. If we're being examined today for the good deed that was done to this sick man, the layman who got up and walked in Jesus' name, let it be known to all of you and to all people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healthy. This Jesus, he's the stone 
that was, though rejected by the builders, God chose him to be the cornerstone. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and discovered that they were uneducated and just ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized these men have been with Jesus. These men, they've seen bold people. They were bold. They called it boldness because they didn't know what to call it. These dudes were on fire. They were beaming with the Shekinah of God. In other words, these men who stood before them were shining because as they stood and said to them, be it known to you, that they were standing as they spoke in the Holy of Holies. They had gone in and they had come out and they were finding pasture. And as they stood in the Holy of Holies, drawing near to Jesus, they spoke. What the Pharisees saw, what the Jewish rulers saw, is they saw the ark and its light. They were looking at what had escaped out of their tabernacle, hallelujah, residing in those men. And I want to conclude with this one thought to lead us in prayer. If you draw near, if as when Scott and Michelle opened up and pleaded, don't stop, press in, don't stop, press in, draw near, Jesus is the door. Don't let him hang on the hinge of your life unused. Pass through that door. Every time you're in trouble, pass through that door. Every time you're empty, pass through that door. Every time you have the enemy on your heels, pass through that door. Draw near. Draw near. Because if you draw near, you can be that person who stands before the world while standing in the presence of God. That is the formula for revival. It's people who will enter in to the Holy of Holies and then speak to the world from the Holy of Holies. You could be that person speaking from the presence of God. Hallelujah. And I believe that is the desire of your heart. It's the desire of mine. Praise God. This, this one thought as we prepare to pray. Maybe this morning you're looking at your life and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't have what people want. People don't find me interesting. I don't speak well. And you could just go, maybe you've got a list of reasons why you feel that you're not qualified to engage unsafe people who are in sin. I don't care what kind of degrees they have, how smart they are, how much money they have, or, or what their attitude towards you is. They're in sin. They are slaves of darkness. And you stand in the light. How can you discount yourself? How can you write yourself off? How can you be silent? How can you be still? How can you be paralyzed? 
in the presence of all you need to do is draw near. In fact, if you're weak, goody. The weaker you are, the better. For when I am weak, then he is strong. So if you this morning are hungry to draw near, praise God, stand up with me.